Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandal Mongers podcast. Good morning. Good morning. We have a bumper issue today. Uh, well, a well-known scandal with, I think, a lot of very new disclosures. This is the Everest of scandals, isn't it? This is the... In terms of British history, there's no more scandalous scandal. Well, it's an ongoing scandal, too, in some ways, because the story hasn't been revealed. It's been a huge cover-up. The files remain closed for another 50 years, uh, if I suspect they haven't been destroyed already. And you could have got to wonder, what is being covered up? Yes, people might be asking, what on earth can these guys say that's new about Profumo? Well, maybe you could tell me. Well, Stephen Doral is one of my authors. Uh, he's probably almost certainly the leading expert on the subject. He's been working on it now for 40 years. He's done several books with Anthony Summers, which have been updated. He interviewed a lot of the key players in the 1980s and 90s when they were still alive uh, and is an extremely good researcher, uh, uh, really follows through and gets the story. And I think what he's done is he's opened up from his, certainly from what I've seen of what he's written, he's opened up the story to show that it has tentacles that stretch way out beyond the obvious names that we've heard Profumo, the cabinet minister had to resign, Ivanov, the naval officer who was involved with uh, Christine Keeler and others, and that it's a much bigger scandal than we we realised. Uh, and that's, I suspect, why it's got to be shut down. Uh, Denning did a report, which everyone even at the time realised was a whitewash. Uh, and uh, from what I know about what uh, Stephen has written about, there were probably good reasons for this story to be shut down then. But I don't think it's very hard to justify it being shut down 60 years later. Gosh, well, that sounds like um, a very exciting uh, hour ahead. So, should we just, for people who are maybe Americans or not British or just don't know about Profumo, it was the early 60s after all, really basic stuff. He's in the it's a conservative government. Harold Macmillan is the prime minister. There have been lots of scandals in the years leading up to it to do with misbehavior in public life and spying. 
and people defecting. Um, Lord Profumo is the Minister of War, so he's across all the top sort of security and military secrets. And, of Um, course, it's the backdrop with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the height of the Cold War. So I think that's an element we, we, we mustn't disregard. All that's going on. We're spying on them. They're spying on us. There are KGB agents running around. There's the British intelligence, MI5, MI6 running around. And then there's this kind of circle of sort of rich, slightly dissolute politicians, aristocrats, who whisper it quietly, maybe members of the royal family, who uh, know this man, Stephen Ward, who sort of arranges parties and can arrange women and can arrange drugs. And it all kind of (laughs) explodes into this, uh, it brings down a government eventually, doesn't it? It sort of brings down a government in the end. It's, it's. I think it certainly weakens the government and leads to its end. But uh, you're absolutely right. Stephen Ward, who is in a sense the tragic figure in this whole story, who was an osteopath who had was trying to help the British establishment and the secret services by using some of his contacts to feed through information, was basically stitched up and thrown to the wolves by the establishment who had enjoyed his parties uh, and by indeed the, the uh, security services who had benefited from the contacts he had passed them. Right. Sex scandal, disgusting British hypocrisy. What's more to love than it's, that? It's the stuff that we always like doing. <laughs> OK, should we go to Stephen? We should. Okay, let's do it. Steve Dorrell, who's the author of several books, including Honey Trap, which is, I suppose, the definitive book on the Profumo affair. And can you tell us a bit about the Profumo affair and and why it was so important? Okay. Um, Well, of course, on one level, the Profumo affair is a very simple sex scandal. Basically, the Minister of War, John Profumo, who wasn't in the Cabinet during the Macmillan government, had an affair in 1961 with uh, Christine Keeler, uh, a 19-year-old girl. The affair went on probably towards the end of the year, though we're still not certain about that. But it only came out in a convoluted route in the media uh, in late 1962, and then it reached the public in uh, June of 1963. And it then had the potential to bring down the Macmillan government, basically because uh, Profumo had lied. He'd lied to his colleagues, and therefore he'd lied in Parliament, and the Macmillan government was accused of itself of lying and covering up this sex scandal. But it's much more complicated than that, because you get the involvement of uh, Stephen Ward, the society osteopath, who was friend of uh, Christine Keeler and a number of other girls who were involved with other politicians, film stars, people on both sides of the Atlantic, etc. There is MI5 who wants to use the situation to attempt to recruit Ivanov. He is working for the GRU and he is also friends of Stephen Ward and it appears that he had some kind of relationship with Christine Keeler, though that's still open to some debate. So there was a security angle there. Um, just to be clear for the people who are not our age, I yeah. don't remember, <laughs> well, I was only three when all this happened, um, Ivanov is a Soviet spy, effectively. Yes. He's got himself involved, and that's the reason it becomes such a massive scandal, isn't it? The, the sense that whatever war is doing with these women He's somehow introducing 
uh, a Soviet agent into the same sort of sexual circle as Britain's minister for war, which is what John Profumo was. Um, and that kind of takes it to another level. Is that, have I got that right? Uh, th- that's entirely correct. Um, of course, um, MI5 are up to their neck in the whole business and they attempt to use Profumo himself to make approaches towards Ivanov with the idea of recruiting him. Uh, that particular time, MI5 can't say they've had, they have a great record. Uh, they're certainly not uh, well liked by the Americans who think they're just um, amateurish. And uh, I think this is part of their attempt to get back into the game and do the things that they did during the Second World War when they turned agents, etc. So you just, of uh, course, had the Philby scandal too, Philby going off to Moscow a couple of years earlier. Well, there oh, are... Fact, sorry, that year. That yes. year, sorry. Uh, and there are endless scandals, aren't there? There's the Portland spy ring, um, uh, and there are others. And the Americans are accusing them of uh, MI5, of not doing anything. And the... Um, FBI uh, officer in London, the legal uh, cover for him, he goes to MFI and he says, look, everything that you've been doing about the security site, we gave you. You didn't come up with anything. And now here's another scandal. And uh, what's going on? And he's, you know, he's attempted to find what they know. Um, it's very clear that MI5 are in deep trouble and they're trying to get out of it as quickly as possible. Uh, and they're not really informing the Americans entirely of what's going on. But there, I mean, the, the great thing to me about the Profumo scandals, as soon as you start looking at it in detail, the whole thing kind of explodes because not only is there MI5 involved, there is MI6, because MI6 have been keeping an eye on Stephen Ward for 10 years from the early 1950s. They thought that this person was of interest and that he knew a lot of very interesting people, and he did, because he was in the Thursday Club in the late 1940s, which had uh, Mountbatten, had Prince Philip. Uh, He knew them, not not, um, on uh, intimate uh, terms, but he certainly knew them, and they spoke and went to parties and things. And uh, MI6 were interested, and they put in two people, basically. Uh, journalist Warwick Charlton, who kind of kept an eye on him, and also a MI6 agent called Lee Tracy, who also worked undercover in newspapers. And they looked out for him. They were interested in who he saw. They were interested in the girls, who they married, etc. And then but there's did another... Did Ward know this? Did he know that he was being monitored, possibly used by intelligence. He he didn't know. No, Ward was... He was innocent, wasn't he, in all this? Yes, he was naive. Because Um, when it all goes wrong, when it all goes wrong, he ends up being caught and rushing to the end of it, but nobody will help him, will they? Whatever service he's done for the state, it seems to be completely forgotten. Absolutely. Well, we know from the records that MI5 actually thought that Ward was a a decent guy. He wasn't involved in anything that was a threat to security. And I certainly know that there were about six MI5 officers who were very angry and upset about what happened to him. And they thought that Hollis should have intervened and said something. And he didn't. That's the head of MI6. 
MI5. MI5, sorry. But so, MI6, uh, Lee Tracy told me that there was a meeting when this started to explode in the beginning of 1963. There was a meeting in which was attended by MI5 and MI6 to monitor what was going on and whether there was a security threat. And he said the MI6 people realized that this was not going to go well and they decided to jump ship. They didn't tell MI5 what they'd been doing and they got out. Uh, Warwick Charlton went to France and uh, Lee Tracy ended up going to Canada to get out of the way. It, it does um, have that classic mix of a British scandal, doesn't it? The, it's got naughtiness in high places, total hypocrisy, court oh, cases, and then, and, somebody hung out, and then somebody hung out to dry, followed by a cover-up. Yeah. But it, in terms of Ward, just I think people should know, he when it all goes wrong and Profumo accepts that he's lied and he resigns, He's taken to court for basically being a pimp and a panderer and a, some kind of predator. Christine Keeler turns on him. I think I've got this right. And, yes. and then he ends up killing himself or some people think he was murdered. But And it's a tragic end for somebody who has just basically organised a few parties, really. Um, yes. I mean, Holy Trap is really a, about the role of Stephen Ward because I think he is the most interesting person in this. Um, he was an osteopath, been in India during the war, went to America, came back, and he moved in interesting circles. Uh, and, and I think London in that uh, mid-50s period is a very interesting place because you do have a kind of elite group of people. I, I would suggest about 300 people were having a great time. <laughs> they, were, they were going to parties organised by people connected to the um, royal family like David Milford Avon, artists, musicians, some journalists. Uh, these were parties where Ward would supply some of the girls. And by saying su supply, that doesn't mean he was a pimp in what we know as a pimp. He met girls in coffee bars. He'd be driving around London in his jack, and he would spot somebody and he'd say, kind of, would you like to go to a party? And um, he would kind of uh, teach them to dress. He was, he was the Higgins character and uh, how to speak and he'd interest, introduce them to interesting people. Some of them did become, you know, uh, married into the aristocracy. Um, I, um, one case is Maureen Swanson, who sued me, uh, when I said she was a rank starlet, which she was, uh, Ward knew quite a few of the people who worked in the film industry and some of those rank starlets he got to know, people around Diana Dawes, etc. and he took to parties and he would take them to these parties and uh, what happened after that was you know, up to them. And what did, uh, what so, did he get out of this? He just liked being the centre of events, did he? Yes. He he clearly had a kind of fetish for this. He liked um, young women, 19, 20, 21, who had some kind of potential. And he was a snob, he, uh, and he wanted them to succeed, and he thought he could do it, and he did. He got people, as I said, married to, like, Lord Dudley, etc. Um and he enjoyed that whole process. He enjoyed mixing in that group. 
and he enjoyed seeing his protégés as they were. Now, there was a sexual element. Um, he did have his own particular kinks. He liked them to dress up in high heels, stockings, etc. But he wasn't really a sexual person uh, in, in straight intercourse or anything. Um, I think he liked to take photographs. He liked to be around artists, and there are a number of artists who did erotic drawings, which are now quite valuable. Uh, who attended some parties and took sketches and those kind of things. I think he liked the whole social process. Um, he's a complicated character, but, I mean, for 10 years he had, I think, a pretty good time and guy kind of got away with it. And it's one of the concerns about the, the, the fact that Prince Philip and other royals were, were associated with him. I mean, he painted the, or drew the royal family. Those pictures were then sort of mysteriously vanished, didn't they? They did. Now, this is one of the kind of hidden elements of the Profumo affair, why it becomes much more interesting than just a straight sex scandal. Because there were various kinds of parties. There were fairly straight parties in um like at Lord Astor at Clifton, which I don't think anything untoward actually happened. Then there were the parties in the cottage, which was different. And there were weekend parties where he would invite people down for the weekend. And people like Christine Keel, Amanda Rice Davis, Paul Mann would go down for the weekend. They would kind of have fairly straight parties, but there would be other elements to those, which I'll come to. But then there were the kind of sex parties. And uh, there were people like Mariella Novotny and Hod Dibbon who held these parties where sex was a major part of it. Uh, drugs were quite an important part. And that's another kind of side piece on the Perfume Affair that, which has been underplayed. The drugs were playing quite an important part. You know, I spoke to people who said they went to a party and there'd be a bowl of barbiturates uh, there and you just all oh, loads of different kinds of pills and you just put your hand in and took some. Um, that partly came from the fact that a lot of these people, the men, obviously, had been in the armed forces during the war and they'd actually taken drugs, barbiturates, to keep them going. Uh, and there were people who were um, supplying drugs to this. Um, and I found some of the first references to LSD in this country uh, at these parties that it was being brought in and, and used. Uh, these parties, um, there were some parties around Baron, the photographer, who was very, very close to Prince Philip. Um, and there were people around Prince Philip went to these parties. Uh, Rees Davis, the barrister, now, Warwick Charlton told me that he'd seen the photographs of these parties, of sex parties, in which Philip appears, Baron, and Rhys Davis. And he said he knew exactly who they were because Rhys Davis had a um, withered arm. Uh, they were naked with girls. Um, and Ward collected photographs. He was a great collector of this stuff. And one of the mysteries is where those photographs went and other material. Gosh. Uh, because do you think there's anything in it then? Rather, yes. than, rather than suicide, he might have been murdered because of what he knew. 
I've come to that. I think that's it's possible. I'm not saying it was what actually happened, but it's entirely possible. Um, I mean, Ward also had some of the um, um, Polaroids from the Duchess of Argyle case. Well, this is the famous headless man, isn't it? The headless man. Another sex party, and you only see his body doing naughty stuff. And you don't see his head, and lots of speculation for decades about this. And much of it is wrong, you know. The the Sam's Astor thing is there, um, so, uh, not Astor, sorry, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And, and I discovered that Douglas Fairbanks Jr. gave a Polaroid camera to Lord Astor in the late nineteen fifties. So they were actually around Polaroid cameras. It, it's not such a big deal that they claim that. Um, Sons got his from the Ministry of Defence. I think they had them before that. And Fairbanks Jr. slept with both Mandy Rice Davis and Christine Keeler, didn't he? He did. Um, Fairbanks was also reporting to the American Embassy. Fairbanks had wor- worked in naval intelligence during the war, as had Lord Astor. And um, there are some FBI files where Fairbanks is reported reporting to the embassy in London. He enjoyed doing that. And he saw it as a protection because he was involved in lots of these kind of things. So it's it's not only a classic British sex scandal with a court case and the fall of a government, it's got a Hollywood movie star in it as well. And and JF Kennedy. I mean, it links us through Mariella, doesn't it, to Kennedy? It does. And, of course, Ward uh, knew the girls. He knew Mariella. She goes to... Sorry, who's Mariella? I think we need to know. Mariella Novotny. She's a mystery figure whose background is still highly debated, but her real name was uh, Capes, and she was born in Sheffield. I did meet Mrs. Capes, um, and we had a very interesting non-discussion. She was just desperate not to say anything about it, to just warn me about her husband who was not to be trusted, Hod Dibbon, who was a brilliant character, lived in Dancer Road. I interviewed him in the 80s and he was old then. And um, he said, um, that's the chair in which um, Mariella had sex with a guy on her wedding night. Uh, whilst I was I was wearing a leather suit, sniffing ampules of <laughs> Benzedrine. Oh, it makes our evenings at the Chelsea Art Club look rather boring, Andrew. <laughs> well, it does. We've we, we, we been ratcheting up the scandal mongers. But Mariana so, went off to um, the United States to follow on from two other girls. One of those was Susie Chang, who remained mysterious for a long time. Um, we did find her, and um, it turned out she was another ward girl. Mm. And she'd been um, involved with Snowden, Anthony Snowden, the Tony Snowden, the photographer, because he had a thing for Chinese girls. And she'd been in um, a couple of low-profile girly movies, which were done by a friend of Ward who did films. Uh, the other one is Susie Chang's still alive. She lives in lives in America. We've spoken to her, and she knew Kennedy. And she said, "Oh yes, I knew Kennedy. I met him at the Twenty One Club." Um, and, um, the other one is a weather girl 
who was another ward girl. She's still alive, but she refuses to talk. But she was on the campaign trail with JFK, and there are some files that have come out recently from the JFK archive, which have unredacted some of the FBI files and show that they were concerned about okay. it. The Americans so, got really concerned about this. So Ward is at the centre of this international kind yes. of party scene for the few hundred people that are allowed to have any kind of fun in the 1960s. Yes. Um, and then, you know, he, he he falls, he's brought down by the scandal of Profumo, takes his own life. Yes. Sad. It's His friends abandon him, I think, and nobody will help him. Um, but does it mean anything beyond just a kind of sordid British sex scandal in the in the really big picture? Well, yes, um, it's the only. Well, it's a, only there are only two instances I'm aware of where the Americans basic, basically said we're closing down the intelligence connection. Now. Um, Almost everybody writes on intelligence and about this underplay what actually happened. And I think deliberately try and ignore it. But there was an American um, agent, a Russian agent called Fedora. And he told the Americans, the CIA, that Avarmov had returned to um, Russia with material and that actually people had been compromised. And the Americans got extremely worried because they weren't getting anything out of the British. And I think it's July 63, they threatened to close the intelligence connection, which is pretty terrifying to the British because, you know, 80% of the intelligence comes from the Americans. Mm. I think they only did this again in 73 over Cyprus with Heath. So the Americans, now whether it's true or not about the actual security, the Americans took it very, very seriously. And Kennedy and his brother were going over the files. They were extremely interested in what was happening in uh, London at that time with Ward and his girls, because clearly they were aware and frightened of Susie Chang. And they have meetings about it at the very highest levels. And it ends up with Robert Kennedy going to the newspaper, which is attempting to expose this, and basically threatening them with a trust suit, which would basically close them down. And so it's only alluded to, it's never really brought out. To protect the secret of his brother's sex life. Yes, yes. And it's the first kind of real occasion where the press in America decides this is a big story, we can bring it out. And the Kennedys use everything they have to stop it. Um, And then, of course... There is a threat to the to the Macmillan government itself. What do they know and when did they know? Because there are two Americans in uh, London at that time, a man called Thomas Corbley, who has an extremely dubious background, uh, gangsters, probably CIA, certainly was in intelligence during the war, etc., who knows Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis, and they tell him things. And also his uh, flatmate is a man called um, Billy Hitchcock, who comes from the extremely wealthy Mellon family. And 
knows the American ambassador in London, David Bruce, who's a former OSS, American intelligence officer, and he tells him about what's going on. And they claim that they've told Macmillan about what's going on with Profumo, Ward and the girls, etc. Um, Corbley is named not directly in Parliament. He's one of three supposed black international blackmailers who has knowledge of what's going on. And George Wig, who is Labour Shadow Minister on Defence and hates Profumo, brings this up in Parliament that there are international things going on. So it has all kinds of you know, ramifications. Right. And then there's a massive inquiry, which I think you and most other journalists and writers consider a cover-up. Uh, to this day, I think documents have not been revealed. Isn't that right? Uh, well, I don't think books are going to be revealed for another sort of 20 or 30 years. Is that, isn't that not right? At least. At least. Yeah. I, I did have correspondence with Lord Denning, his inquiry in September of 63, and he said that um, some of the material was so salacious the British public shouldn't see it, basically. And he wanted it locked away. He wanted it actually destroyed. Well, why do you think that is? Is this about the royal family, or is this just about... British obsession with secrecy and sex and sex. Yes, I mean one of the things they did he hated was uh, Marion Novotny and Hod, who who just told him what they did uh, about the parties and all the rest of it, and he really hated that. Uh, but yes, there are. I, it's difficult to know because simply the the, the uh, inquiry was a cover up. It was a whitewash. And uh, so we don't really know what is in it. Uh, but one assumes that some of the stuff that Ward was into and got up to and the girls, et cetera, is there. Uh, so we don't see that. But we have had the, the MI5 files, which are interesting because, you know, I've been following this for 30 years or more. And there are new names, which um, we didn't know about. Um, there is new material. What's interesting is they knew about Susie Chang. There is a section in it which says that she went off to America, went on the campaign trail, JFK, etc. So they did know some things. Um, but what, uh, what I found interesting was a lack of investigation. On the one hand, it reveals a kind of secret state in which they have numerous sources everywhere. They're getting all this material in from a source all the time. And you know, one of the pieces I found interesting was about drugs because um, they're very concerned that one of the drugs that Corbally is using is used uh, by intelligence for interrogations. And um, they have a source who must have been in the room. Mandy Rice Davis is given three crushed tablets by Corbally and she takes them. And the guy describes the scene and gives it uh, a report to MI5. Uh, but they have all this material, but it never seems to go anywhere. They don't, never develop it. They never investigate. And there, what's disturbing also is, although they know about Ivanov and have quite a lot of material about him, been following him around, obviously uh, because they want to try and entrap him and they want to recruit him, they don't mention other people. But we know for a fact that there were KGB people involved. Um, I got Stephen Ward's card 
which had been given to him by a man called Belyakov, who was a KGB officer. Belyakov is extremely interesting because he had been involved in the honey trap operation in Norway, attempting to recruit or entrap uh, the wife of the president. And I was told from a good source, as they say, that Belyakov's mission in London was actually to entrap Perfumo's wife. Oh, really? Uh, Perfumo's wife was having an affair at the time, uh, which is why it wasn't such a big thing uh, that Perfumo, her husband, was having an affair. Uh, This was kind of normal practice uh, within this group. So that wasn't a great shake that he you know, went off with Kilo or whatever. And that was covered up. I mean, that, that's that's new information to me. Um, and I followed this quite closely. Oh, so we're back after a short break because, as regular listeners know, we're far too cheap to have a proper professional Zoom account. Um, but we were just talking about um, the fact that all of this perfume affair, maybe Stephen was suggesting, was part of a bigger KGB plot to entrap. Uh, perhaps the wife of Profumo, um, which is very, very intriguing. Um, but we probably never quite finished up with, with poor old Stephen Ward, because I I still don't quite understand what happened to him and, and why he died. Um, I, I think that's still the case, really. We don't. Um, the official and tragic version is that Ward was up for trial for essentially pimping. It was all a big lie. It had been set up, really, by the police. The police carried out hundreds of interviews uh, in a desperate attempt to get um, some material to convict Ward. Um, Really, this probably went out from the Home Secretary of the time, Brooke, and uh, the police, MI5, withdrew from the case. They didn't want to get involved. But the establishment went after Ward. There was a meeting of Ward's friends and um, people like Dudley, Astor and others that he knew came together, had a meeting. Um, they discussed whether they would support Ward or not. And they did. Oh. Astor did support him financially at the trial so you have to say that 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 was a really good thing but these kind of establishment figures did not want to get involved in what turned out to be the big scandal of the century and they'd all been at his parties they'd all enjoyed his hospitality absolutely and they were they were married to some of his girls uh, because they knew that and uh, that was a kind of dangerous thing as well Uh, and there were other elements going on because there were collections of photographs, pornography. One of the world's biggest pornographic collections was held by uh, David Milford Haven, who had been the best man for Prince Philip. His father had held <laughs> I I never pornographic knew collection. I never knew that. Uh, I, I, I've seen the collection. It's both in, uh, in Texas and in the British Library, or some of the collection. Uh, yes, the- I, actually, I actually own uh, a little part of it. Uh, I went to an antiquarian bookseller who had his shop uh, near the Bank of England in the um, late 80s and uh, asked if they had for sale any of the Milford Avon collection. And he kind of a bit shocked. How did I know that? Uh, Anyway, I bought a uh, 
it cost me fifty pounds at the time, which was a lot of money f- for me. And it is a diary of uh, George Milford Haven's trips to Paris at the beginning of the twentieth century, and all the different kinks that he was into. And Milford Haven, uh, when his father died, inherited this stuff, but he was very close to Ward, and he held some of the sex parties. And when the Profumo affair blew up, he got worried and he asked his uh, chauffeur to get rid of it. Um, He did burn some of it, but he realised that this was quite valuable stuff. And so he kept it. And uh, over the next few years, some of it uh, came into the booksellers and into the collections. And some of it survived. But there were other people with collections as well. He wasn't the only one. And Ward was into this kind of thing. So they're, um, they're all these rich, horny, pervy, British upper-class types. They just run away. They, they run away. He has to give yes. them the money, but the rest of them, he's hung out to dry, really. Uh, yes. So he gets the trial. He's, he's left by himself. And um, essentially, Keeler lies. She's under intense pressure because of another case involving uh, some Afro-Caribbeans that she's been involved in, and uh, they're, a couple of them are really vicious characters. Um, and she lies in the case against Ward. I mean, Ward was not a pimp in any kind of sense. He liked the girls, he helped them, he did give them accommodation and all the rest of it. Did he take money from them? <sighs> Occasionally for rent, but the most, no, not at all. And the other one was Mandy Rice Davis, who made the infamous statement to uh, Lord Astor, he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, she was very good. And she's one of the actual few that comes out of this reasonably well. But what does Keela say? Keela lies. Keela says he was my pimp. Well, she's kind of forced into admitting various things, like she received a gift um, from a perfumer. Uh, so that merely ties her in as being a prostitute. Uh, but I think under any conventional meaning of the word, we wouldn't see her as a prostitute. There is evidence that she did, in fact, be a prostitute for a, a short period. But really, she was a kind of good-time girl. And, uh, you know, if it had been reversed and been men, it, it would never have cropped up. But they used everything they could against Ward. And they got a lot of dubious uh, prostitutes in who did lie and admitted it after because they were under intense pressure from the police to lie in court. So it came to the kind of final night. Now, there are two versions. Basically, Ward had had enough and he went home and uh, he was living in the flat of Noel Jones, and he took an overdose of barbiturates, and he was dead next morning. Um, now, it comes becomes somewhat controversial. Lee Tracy said, no, he actually was done in. Um, he named the person who did it, Stanley Reiter, who was a Polish um, part-time journalist who worked one time for Rackman. Rackman being the notorious uh, landlord, although, uh, you know, that's another rabbit hole to go down, the whole uh, Rackman thing. Um, And we did speak to his daughter, uh, other Polish exiles who knew him, 
uh, we spoke to Paul Mann, who said that he met with some MI5 characters who said, yes, he was done in. Um, so you believe it? It's hard to know. It's entirely possible. Uh, there is a dispute between uh, Tom Mangold, famous panorama journalist who said that he was the last person to see him that night and says, no, he, he, he was writing letters to uh, various people indicating that you know, there was no way out. This was kind of the end. However, there is also uh, another uh, express journalist, Brian Wharton, a photographer who says, no, he was the last person to see him, and he actually took photographs of Ward writing a letter to the Home Secretary, threatening to reveal names of people, etc. Um, Wharton says that he took photographs, he expected, and Ward told him he'll see him next day at the court. Um, he sent his photographs to the Express, dropped them off, and he says those photographs disappeared. And he's adamant that he did that. Um, so there is some controversy about that, but clearly. It's possible that Ward didn't know much more. Uh, we know that that last night he went to Rackman's former home and apparently took something from the ceiling, which had been hidden. What that was, we don't know, but it's possible it could be photographs. Uh, the photographs, we know where they went. There is a very interesting passage in the Crossman Diaries. He turns up at Oddman's Press one day, June 24, I think it is. And he says he walks into the room and there are all the bigwigs, cudlip, etc. And he realises something is going on and they don't want to tell him. Now, Warwick Charlton... These are the people that run the Daily Express, just to be clear. No, this is Oddman's Press round Mirror. Oh, He's the Mirror. OK, sorry. Separate one. And Warwick Charlton, the person who'd been kind of keeping an eye on uh, Ward, says that the photographs which Special Branch had picked, uh, were after were at Odom's Press, and that they came in, and this is what Crossman came uh, on to, and picked up the photographs, and that was the last we saw of them. Certainly Denning had been given material, and that was one of the reasons why he never wanted the Denning report and its contents and interviews, etc., to be ever revealed. And he so never... these are the papers that are still being held back and maybe held back for another few decades? Uh, if they exist anymore. Right. I mean, uh, the, as Andrew knows, the uh, situation of files in the Cabinet Office is an absolute disgrace. I mean, there's no catalogue, things are missing, they don't know where they are. Um, they did an investigation about five years ago. Two home office people went in to look, and they said they came across stuff that had been hidden away for decades. So, but anyway, so it's potential that Ward did have material that would be kind of blackmail material would be very dangerous. It's possible, of course, he killed himself, and then somebody came in to clean the place up and remove entirely. All Entirely. I mean, seems more likely. I'm not sure how comfortable you are accusing Polish spies of committing murder on our little podcast, but I don't know. Well, they're all dead, but what, what was interesting uh, from our viewpoint when we looked at it was it just wasn't one person making this accusation. It was a number of people who were confirming that uh, the writer in particular had mentioned this and had written a okay. uh, piece about it. So, and your guess, Stephen, if you had to... 
I'm not willing to guess because uh, I, you know, it's there. There is something not quite right about the last night because you have two solid witnesses who are not backing down and they're claiming, you know, both sides. I mean, I can. Uh, Noel Jones says it's very clear it was it was a um, barbiturate poisoning. Uh, but when you have other evidence, you don't, you know just don't dismiss it when it's that kind of strong. So, but so, so I think you've got specific people named too. It, it, it yes. seems there may be more to it. But I mean, what was Mangold doing if he was writing suicide notes, not actually trying to prevent him committing suicide? Uh, you would have to ask that. But I mean, I know that Mangold was going through a difficult time with his own relationship. Uh, that and he was desperate to get home. Um, yes, so, Thomas, I know Tom. I worked with him at Panorama. He he has written about this, and he does feel remorseful that he was so preoccupied with his yeah. own life problems in his life that he didn't spend the time that he feels might have saved, um, you know, changed uh, his mind, uh, Ward's mind. But who, he'll never know that. We'll never know. He'll that. never know that. And on the other side, Ward generally believed that. Um, Ward wasn't going to commit suicide and was actually going to stand up the next day it's, and defend you know, himself. It is a very dark story, isn't it? And it makes you think Britain in the early 60s, you know, it was, it, it, it's like a bit of a, it's a police state. I mean, you've got, oh, okay, it's not a police state, but it's, it's not the state. story that are very dark, the police and the Home Office going after somebody in the way you might think the Soviets would. Well, um, yes. So I mean, it's it's very clear that there were those inside MI5, Mitchell, etc., and I've got a list of names who were very upset about this, angry. There were scenes apparently inside the service that they should have come out and protected Ward. I mean, uh, Peter Wright, one of the interesting little bits that he revealed later was that um, Hollis, who was the director general of MI5, actually destroyed some evidence, which is embarrassing to MI5. When um, uh, Denning, the judge, uh, asked for material from MI5, Hollis apparently, according to Peter Wright, and I don't disbelieve him on this point, destroyed some of the material that he should have sent, which would have put Ward in a better light. So, what a but tangled, tangled web! It gets. I think it gets even darker, much darker, because I think at the centre of all of this are the women, and. These are young women who are exploited and exploited again by men. Uh, there is another kind of rabbit hole in this is the abortions. There was an abortionist, Dr. Sugden, who was the abortionist in Stars kind of way and was friends of Ward and the girls went there. But so did members of the aristocracy. And there is a Hollywood actress who's still alive who went to Sugden. Uh, it was that terrible period of illegal abortions, etc. Um, there are there's the pornography, the films in which the women were engaged in on the parties. There are the women who stood by Ward. There are two women who stood by Ward right to the end, were with him in the last few days, who spoke up for him in court. What happened? Well, very few of the women came out of this well. Mandy Rice Davis is one of the very, very few. She's still alive, isn't she? No, she's dead now. She's dead. We spoke 
to her extensively and she was very good and memory was very good. She was very bright. She knew what was happening and she looked after herself. She got out at the right time and she made something of herself. You know, Keela was incredibly naive. She had no clue what was going on. She wasn't the brightest person around and she was exploited. She was having a good time, but at the same time, she was being completely exploited. And of course, at the end, um, she led, led a, I think, a tragic life. I mean, ter- some terrible things. Right at the end, she ended up being a dinner lady and under an assumed name. When they discovered who she was, I mean, they took it out on her. She was forced to leave. She couldn't really kind of find a life outside of being trapped. In you know, the- it's funny. We, we did a show a few weeks ago on the Georgians, and we talked about Emma Hamilton and that world of these very young girls coming to London, getting involved with show business and art and politics. And if they were lucky, they'd get a rich husband, but they could just be disposed of, traded. And, you know, <laughs> several hundred years later, it's not that different, is it? Well, you use the word dispose, and that's what actually happened because the year after uh, Ward's death was um, news of the Jack the Stripper murders. These were a series of murders of prostitutes that had taken place over a period of about four or five years. Prostitutes who were found um, naked and dead in various places in London. Now, two of them were linked to the Profumo affair. Francis Brown, who appeared in court uh, against um, Ward, and another one, Anna Tailford, who is alleged to have taken part in the parties at David Milford Haven, were two of the victims of this. Um, This drew in a lot of investigation into aspects of the Profumo affair and the girls that had been involved. But you know, the, some of the Julie Gulliver uh, stood by Ward. She ended up um, committing suicide. Uh, Marlowe, who was kind of his big find in the fifties, she did, and various others. So you know, at the heart of this is is the treatment of women, and it was. And did they commit suicide, or do you think there's yes. something more sinister? No, I think a lot of it was, um, you know, again, exploited by men. They had a good time for a short period. They got uh, rejected, thrown out, disposed of, the abortions. I mean, I don't know, Keela uh, had, you know, three or four abortions in this period, um, as did others. Um and, you know, the aristocracy, those who were Ward's friends for time, came out of this well. They did all right. Uh, Perfumer, of course, did fine in the end. He was a multimillionaire. Uh, he was back in with the royal family by the, you know, the 80s. Uh, he was with the Queen Mother, go horse racing, all that kind of thing. He was rehabilitated. But people have forgotten completely uh, the existence of... You know, there's a dozen girls... If you go from the 50s onwards, you know, Ruth Ellis was a friend of Ward. And uh, she was, I'd say, another victim uh, of what was going on. Uh, And there were others. It's an incredible social history, this. And you do read people all the time saying, oh, 
you know, let's return to the morality of the 1950s and everything. Yes. No, it wasn't. It was horrible. It was, people had no rights and all these abuses were happening behind closed doors. And yeah, gosh. And what about the girls who married into the aristocracy? Are some of them still alive? No, I, as far as I'm aware, the, the, you know, everybody's gone now. Can you say who they were then? Well, the one I would say more than that is Maureen Swanson. Uh, as I said, she um, uh, sued us. Uh, we didn't bother to uh, even bother with it. It was ridiculous. Uh, she said that we referred to her as a rank starlet, which she was, but she said she wasn't a girlfriend of uh, Ward, which which is nonsense. Uh, you know, some people have come forward since, and they knew Maureen Swanson very well in the mid-50s and late-50s, and she married uh, the person who became Lord Dudley. I mean, Dudley spoke to us. He was quite open about it. He didn't mind, but uh, she wanted to get rid of the past, but she lived with Ward for a time. She mm-hmm. was uh, friends with uh, Sean uh, um, James Bond. Connery. Um, Connery. And um, she was uh, well known around London in the mid fifties, partying, etc. Uh, and she, I'm glad just... somebody got something out of it. Um, yeah, we, we, we do have to stop now because we're well over the hour. But well, I'll just say one thing. I think this is, in a way, the beginnings of the sixties. That what you see is. Uh, like the, I mean, there's West Indians, there's the music, the the clubs, and you see kind of the breakout that young women are becoming much more independent, and they are making something of themselves, and the, and the music is changing. So this is is a key moment in lots of ways in the social history of uh, Britain. Well, and we see so much of this in television programs now, the fact there have been several films based on Profumo. Um, but it's it's a much bigger scandal in some ways than I realised, with, as you say, these tentacles going, stretching out and continuing to this day, really. Indeed. I think so. Yeah. And thank you so much for talking us through it. I mean, I just learned so much. I'm sort of depressed at the end of it, I'd say. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's, kind of it's a wonderful, more, wonderful more story. It's fascinating. And you've done so much work. You've really taken the story forward in a way I don't think any other authors have. So thank you very much. And we'll put a link onto your book, which we, we thoroughly recommend. Okay. Thanks all right. very much. We'll, see you, all we'll okay. see you soon. Thank see you. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. 